Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today on The Art of Range is Jack Southworth, a rancher in eastern Oregon. I met Jack last year by a recommendation of several range researchers who said we should consider Southworth Brothers Ranch for a short film documentary series we were doing at Washington State University on ranchers managing for rangeland resiliency against climate uncertainty. Thank you, John Buckhouse and Hugh Barrett, for putting us together. And we also need to recognize the Society for Range Management for their support of the podcast. Anyone who is involved in range management should be a member of the SRM. Go to rangelands.org to learn how to sign up. And for those listeners who are certified professionals in range management, there are continuing education credits available for engaging with the podcast. Go to artofrange.com to learn how to claim your credits. Jack Southworth, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Tip. Thanks for coming to downtown Bear Valley. Glad to be here. Uh, First, how did you end up being a rancher? Was this something that happened by birthright? Uh, lifestyle choice, business opportunity, maybe a get-rich-quick scheme? <laughs> uh, certainly not a get-rich-quick scheme, but uh, uh, by birth, my great-grandfather had a small sawmill in near Canyon City, and to operate his sawmill, he had some oxen and horses he needed hay for. So he took out a homestead here in Bear Valley to and uh, cut hay on that uh, homestead to for his oxen and horses. Well, my... Uh, Grandfather and great uncle thought the logging sawmill thing was not a path to pursue, but they thought they could develop a ranch out here in Bear Valley. And uh, they uh, grew the ranch over time. Uh, After uh, their careers here, my folks took it over. I grew up on the ranch. And uh, from about high school on, I thought this was an interesting path to pursue. There's something about managing livestock, managing grass, Uh, managing people in a way that is good for land, livestock, and people and brings about a profit that is just a fascinating puzzle. And I think the uh, opportunity to learn about range science, animal science, uh, social skills uh, was uh, compelled me to uh, return to the ranch and uh, make a career here. And my wife and I have managed the ranch since 1978, my wife, Teresa. Very good. There's a, a line from an old Alabama song that often comes back to mind. It says, uh, the fruits of their labor are worth more than their pay. They keep the country turning around. And I want to say that I appreciate people who uh, generate true wealth. That's what makes a culture and an economy keep moving. Uh, we, we're discussing ecological, economic, and, ecolo- and uh, social resiliency or sustainability of beef cattle operations. Uh, and there's been quite a bit written and talked about uh, about how that's tied to matching the animal to the environment. Uh, there have been quite a few prominent spokesmen for these ideas, both in the mainstream beef industry uh, and in academia. We visited with Fred Provenza recently, and uh, he talked about Kit Farrow as one of the evangelists of low-cost production and smaller animals. Uh, Kit is perhaps best known for pushing smaller breeding stock, uh, both cows and bulls, and has turned quite a few large ranches toward smaller body size animals. You know that's related to uh, a number of long-term studies that have been done looking at ranch economics. And livestock economists commonly come up with the conclusion that the ranch who's the lower cost producer is the one that consistently makes money, uh, like it or not. But there have been others who would say we have, you know, we have high-powered genetics in the beef industry now, and we should pay for whatever inputs are necessary to be able to capitalize on those genetics and produce a superior animal. What are your thoughts on on trying to match the animal to the environment, and to what extent is there maybe a trade-off between producing what the market wants and producing an animal that fits well in a, uh, in a semi-arid landscape? You know, that's a really good question. The, the it's obvious to me that the size of our individual cows uh, has gotten too big. 
you know, we used to think of a, a old time Hereford cow of being a 900 to a thousand pound cow. And uh, in range management, we still think of a animal unit month as based on a thousand pound cow. But the average cow in uh, uh, the registered Angus, registered Hereford, Simmental, take your pick, they're all somewhere between 13, 1400 pounds now. And our commercial herds are not far behind, and some of them are as equally big. So you talk about high-powered genetics, but that genetics has outpaced that the requirements that those genetics need to perform has gone beyond what a lot of our arid range environments can provide. So I think people like Kip Farrell to, to rein that in, say, we don't need frame score six and seven cows. We need frame score three and four cows is a good thing to put the brakes on that expansion in the size of the cows in our cow herd and, and bring them back to what our environment can support. However, it's not just about the environment. It's also about being able to market your product. And you want to uh, have an animal that will perform well in the feedlot, end up at the size that the packer can afford to process, and end up in the meat counter in, in individual cuts, the size of which that the customer, the retail customer, wants for his or her table. And so I think it's a balancing act. Personally, I think frame score three and four cows are too small. I also think frame score six and seven are too big. But if we can get somewhere between a frame score four and a half to six, then I think we have something that uh, does a better job of matching our environment and matching the needs of the consumer. And you talked about resiliency. We need cattle that can uh, handle adverse conditions. And you said in the introduction about how it seems like our environment, our weather, our climate, there's more variability in it. There's, uh, we'll go to, from a very wet year or years to uh, a dry year or years. And so having cattle that can survive an environment that uh, has different levels of production in it is going to be critical. And I think these smaller frame cows, and, what, and I uh, use the term optimum frame, uh, will do that. I read something long, not long ago is that with modern genetics, a cow-calf man can't afford to sell his cattle as wiener calves because they haven't had time to perform. And that's a little spooky because that means that the genetics we have are best suited to the feedlot, the finishing phase. And we need genetics that work well on the range. We need cows that can uh, give birth, uh, cycle, breed back, wean a calf on the range conditions we have without too much additional uh, protein, protein or energy supplementation. And if we keep going for larger and larger cows, we're going to run the risk that we're going to be increasingly adding to the cost of supplementing those cattle. You mentioned that the low-cost producer is oftentimes the most profitable. And to me, well, okay, I'll give you that grudgingly. But I think it's the, the producer that minimizes costs at the same time optimizing the income. And so maybe the, the right supplement at the right time uh, more than pays for itself. Um, but we need to keep a lid on the production requirements of, the, of these cattle. And so having said that maybe frame score three and four is too small, it's certainly a good thing to keep the production size and requirements of our cow herd in check. So how do we do that? First of all, I think we stop replacing or selecting replacement heifers that are the biggest in the herd. Gosh, they're fun to look at, aren't they? Mm -hmm. And either a weaning or coming in as yearlings, those uh, big heifers, you think, my golly, I should reward myself. I'll have a better cow herd because they've obviously performed here. But we puts us on a track for ever larger livestock. So instead of selecting replacement heifers at, from the largest end of the herd, let's scale it back a little bit and select replacement heifers that are average or just a little bit above. And that keeps our cow size in check, but also rewards performance. Um, secondly, if we individually weigh our cows, 
each fall at weaning and preg testing um, so that we know what our cow size is and we want a cow that's somewhere around 12 to 12 and a half but there's a range that works and so we have 1100 pound cows and we also have 1350 1400 pound cows but there's a limit to what we want here and those cows that are over 1400 pounds we're starting to sell because they're really marketable uh, they are well received in the marketplace there are people on irrigated pasture that want that size of cow so getting big rid of the biggest cows in our cow herd is helping us um, keep our cow size in check and then thirdly what i just mentioned weighing the cows in the fall has been a real eye-opener for us. Erwin, you talked to, says, yeah, we run about 1,200-pound cows. And they don't know. Right. When because they, they never weigh, weigh their cattle. Yeah. The average is quite a bit higher than what they think. And so by weighing our cattle, it's got our attention that our cow size has gotten too big, too. And we're pulling it back. So those are things we are doing from by selecting females to keep cow size in check. But the other thing to do is when you select your sire, when you go to a bull sale, what do you buy? Same way with your replacement heifers, you buy the high-performing bull. We've got to stop doing that. We've got to start buying bulls that are frame score five and no more than frame score six. And to help, because it's their offspring, they're going to come back in the herd. And so uh, making sure that the breeders you buy from um, have measured the frame score of their bulls and know uh, the genetics behind them, that's an, an important part of knowing the size of our cow herd and making sure that it fits our environment. The third thing I'd say after females, after bulls, is have a set of rules for how you're gonna manage your cow herd. It's important to meet the nutrient requirements. There's lots of information now about the nutrient requirements of our cow herd at each state of gestation and lactation. So we should meet those requirements based on a size of cow but we shouldn't overdo it. And by keeping our rations in check with the uh, size of cow we want, that'll also help eliminate cows that get too big. Because if they get too big, they should come in as open cows or cows that didn't produce a very good calf. So all those things together, I think, will help us keep the size of our, cow, of our cows, of our indiv individual cows in check. And at the same time, I think it'll help us better match our cattle to our environment. It, should we get smaller than that 1,200-pound cow? Should we get down to 1,000, 1,100? I would uh, say that we ought to keep in mind the needs of our customers beyond the ranch, the feedlot, the packer, and ultimately the consumer. And let's make sure that we're providing the cow that performs well for the feedlot, processes well for the packer, and eats well for the customer. And if we keep looking at those things, that'll help tell us what size we want. I've seen some uh, some cows that are half Coriandi and half Angus on in an environment that's extremely steep, you know, a lot of mm -hmm. topographical variation. And uh, they consistently do a better job of accessing the areas that are farther from water or on steeper, rougher slopes, you know, than say a 1,200-pound Angus cow. These, these that are half and half are probably... <laughs> 1,000 to 1,100 pounds each. Uh, in that group of cattle, there were also some straight coriandis that kind of look like mountain goats. They're about wow. 800 pounds a piece. Mm -hmm. uh, but when those when those half and half cows are bred back to an Angus bull, they produce a really nice calf uh, that is still functioning well in the feedlot and sold pretty well. You talked about, uh, we've talked about adjusting the genetics of the cow herd in order to try to match the environment uh, to what extent is it possible or do you manage the, the relative composition of the different classes of livestock in order to match the environment? And by composition of the classes, you mean? Uh, steers versus cows, pairs, based on the feed resource or the uh, variation in year-to-year. -year in Okay. In so I, I heard two things there. One, uh, you talked about the extreme environments that might need a a smaller size cow to cover the country. Then the other thing, uh, the classes of livestock that we have on this ranch to meet the uh, forage uh, production that we have here. Am yep. I hearing it right? Yeah. So in the extreme environment, uh, the Coriante Angus or a Longhorn with a British animal, 
those are excellent ways to address the needs of really severe environments. It might be uh, low precipitation environments, or it might be uh, environments that are steep and rugged. And that's good. What I described to you uh, before was a ranch like ours that raises its own replacements. But if I was in a real rugged environment, what I might do is have these uh, crossbed uh, smaller cows and then buy a terminal cross bull like an Angus. And that would produce the calf that would fit the marketplace, the feeder, the packer, and the consumer. And yet I'd have the smaller size cow for my environment. And the only trick would be, where do I find my replacements? Do I have a separate herd that just grows replacements or am I able to find them elsewhere? But that is, a, I think, an excellent point that um, we don't have to uh, produce our own replacements. We can buy them elsewhere that maybe better fit the environment than the cattle we're producing with a terminal cross. Um, as far as classes of livestock to meet the forage production on our ranch, we're what you call a cow-calf yearling outfit in that we uh, have cows that raise calves at weaning. Instead of selling the calves, we carry them over for uh, the, the winter after their weaning and then the next growing season. And then we sell them as long yearlings, uh, placing them in the feedlot or selling them as bred heifers. And the nice thing about a cow-calf yearling outfit is that yearling phase can be a shock absorber. On a year that we don't have much forage, we can either uh, sell those yearlings in the spring, run a shorter time in the summer, uh, or find additional grazing for them elsewhere uh, because yearlings are easy to haul and ship easier than cows and calves. Yet we still have the, the base herd, the cow-calf herd, that was well in line with the uh, annual forage production on this ranch whether it be a good year or a bad year. And then we can use those yearlings then to uh, 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 take advantage of a really good year or decrease the yearlings in a year we don't have as much production. And then within that, we could, uh, additional flexibility would be, well, something we might want to keep in mind is having a smaller cow herd, running our yearlings, and then deciding whether or not to purchase additional yearlings for our summer grazing. Where we are in Bear Valley is at a, a relatively high latitude or altitude for Eastern Oregon at 4,700 feet. And we have uh, uh, cooler summers. We have green grass a little longer. And so on a yearling, we can put on 300, 350 pounds of gain. And that gives us some flexibility too, whether or not to purchase a yearling to use on our summer grass. So those three things, the size of the cow herd, how long do you keep your own yearlings and possibly purchasing uh, yearlings to place on your own feed. Or a fourth one would be you could rent pasture to someone with yearlings uh, for them to run. Those are all ways that we can deal with these fluctuations in forage production on our own base property. Yeah. <clears throat> I interviewed Kirk Davies recently about some of the research they're doing there at the burn station. And most of our conversation had to do with management of invasive annual grasses. But we were also discussing the inherent variability in most Western landscapes. And by Western, I mean everything west of the 100th meridian, mm -hmm. uh, right in the middle of the Great Plains. And, and pretty much all of this has always been characterized by high interannual variability in the timing and amount of precipitation. That's not a new thing. Uh, but maybe we're just beginning to be able to respond to that in a way that makes some sense. Uh, and Kirk said that there at the burn station, they have about an average of 14 inches of annual precip. Uh, but he said they might be only, you know, one year out of 10 that they're within 10% of that 14 inches. Other years are either higher or lower and probably more lower than higher, but the good years still keep the average up there. Mm -hmm. uh, to, how much would you say uh, forage production related to precipitation varies on your place? So we're high enough altitude. We're reliable enough in precipitation that we have almost entirely perennial grasses. Perennial grasses are more stable in production than annual grasses. To the south of us, where Kirk's talking about, um, you have more annual grasses and then greater fluctuations in production. But even so, here, I think we would have a, a 20 to 30% variation in production. And, um, and still think that was in the range of normal. Right. 
a 20 to 30 percent reduction isn't a panic for us. That's something we need to deal with. And so we would deal with that by um, either uh, decreasing yearlings or running them for a shorter period of time. We might find uh, outside grazing elsewhere we could put our yearlings on. And so those yearlings would absorb that 20 percent difference. If we feel like we're in a dry spell, we might cut back on the number of replacements we keep. Um, we might start feeding hay earlier in the winter. Um, if we think that uh, we've had less uh, production of the year and we're getting short of fall forage, um, and we would make up that difference by purchasing additional hay. But mostly, the, we account for the differences in production by fluctuations in the number of yearlings that we that we sell. And I think Kirk's exactly right. Uh, uh, wet years, dry years, but hardly ever an average year. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we're a little bit insulated from that in the Intermountain West where we have primarily a wintertime precipitation pattern. Mm -hmm. On the east side of the Rocky Mountains, they tend to be a little bit uh, more variable even where there's years where things don't even green up in the spring. You know, when they have a drought, it's a short enough drought. You know, we call it, we have drought conditions every year because it doesn't rain much after April 15th in mm -hmm. most of this part of the world. A little bit different environment, uh, but similar responses. The podcast is called The Art of Range because practicing range management is as much about learning from the environment as it is imposing management inputs on the environment. And a good rancher is adapting all the time, whether that's conscious or not. Uh, to some extent, I think it's true that a profitable ranch must be one that successfully adapts. Uh, when I was talking with Fred Provenza, he, he made the case that fighting nature gets expensive. Uh, but as you mentioned before, there's some there's a sweet spot there. The economists would say where marginal revenue equals marginal cost uh, that represents kind of a, a zone of profitability. Uh, what are what are some ways that that you've managed uh, your environment uh, for say maximum or optimum productivity, uh, separate from the cow herd, but now focusing on uh, land management practices. We think of ourselves first and primarily as a grass ranch. You know, we, we're all called cattle ranches, but we're really a grass ranch. I mean, that's what we're producing. The cattle are a way to, to market that resource. And so we uh, are thinking constantly about the long-term health and productivity of these perennial grass plants. And the first thing we want to do is reduce the amount of bare ground we think of bare ground as the as a failure and if we could have a hundred percent ground cover a hundred percent of the time on all parts of the ranch that would be success and that's the goal well, i don't think we're ever going to achieve that goal but we'd like to get there with that dense stand of perennial grasses and where i don't have a perennial grass plant i have decaying plant litter on the ground and so we have something that uh, rain can hit but it's not going to move the soil we have something on the ground that the sun can shine on, but it's going to insulate that soil from uh, increases and decreases in soil temperature. We think that by having soil covered, we're going to have less precipitation and plant more plant, more soil moisture available for plant growth for a longer period of time into the spring and summer. So those are all the reasons we want to have our ground covered. And then the second thing we keep in mind is when is that plant best able to uh, take on a grazing by a, a livestock? And I realize that some people graze year round, but for us, we think of our prime grass growing season as being um, May and uh, well into June, but still, probably not more than 60 days of really good grass growth. Albeit plants start greening up in April, albeit there's slow grass growth going into July, but that May and June period is when you capture 90, 95% of your plant growth. And so we don't want to start grazing until the grass plants have at least three and a half new green leaves uh, from the current year's growth on the grass plant. And that way, we're getting past the time when the perennial grass plant is using its energy reserves 
to for that first early spring growth and it's starting to rely on photosynthesis. Mm -hmm. Secondly, we want to, uh, when we bite that graze plant or growing plant, we want to reduce, uh, only use a quarter to a third of the, those green leaves. Uh, we want to leave a lot of photosynthetic material behind so that plant can continue to grow in May and June and uh, achieve its potential for the soil moisture we've uh, uh, be able to store it in the ground and the capability of the plant to grow. So that means that one, we start at grazing after three and a half leaves, but then also I kind of like short grazing periods. We think of a, of a plant year as being 365 days, but the plant growth season is only 60. Mm -hmm. And so 60 days where the plant has to uh, grow, uh, set seed and store energy in its root reserves. And that is a growth period where we want to be real careful how we graze. What we do after that growing period is not all that important as long as we leave quite a bit of residual behind. And so we want that short grazing period and then leave that grass plant and don't come back to it either until the following year or after the end of the, the growing season. And by doing that, we are uh, maximizing the production of those plants, maximizing the residual. Why do I care about the residual? Isn't that just wasted feed? And my answer is that the residual feed is what is able to become ground cover, to cover up that bare ground. And one other thing about grazing after three and a half leaves and before the plant sets seed, is that we can stimulate tillery. And even on these perennial grass plants, these, these bunch grasses that we don't think of as being rhizomatous or anything, they still send out lead tillers. And by grazing between three and a half leaves and seed set, we can stimulate that tillery, which also increases the density of grass plants on the ground. And so uh, short grazing periods, long recovery periods, and uh, getting as much material on the ground as possible. So if, if I were you, I'd say, well, gee whiz, Jack, just sounds like you're wasting feed. You're coddling your plants. And my answer is, is we need to invest in our plants, that um, these grass plants are like an investment with principle and interest. And if we start leaving a very little residual, and by very little, I'm saying two or three inches residual behind, or we start grazing too early when, the, when it's just root reserves providing the green uh, leaves early in the spring, we're eating principal. And I want the savings account uh, in terms of the health of my grass plants increasing. And if I have a more vigorous plant that I'm utilizing uh, uh, 25 to 30% of, that 25 to 30% gets bigger and bigger and bigger over time. We aim for about six-tenths of an AUM per acre. So an AUM being a, a, a thousand pounds of forage, we're aiming for about 600 pounds of production per acre. I think if you looked at our land, you'd say, well, gee whiz, Jack, looks like you're producing a thousand. But the reality is that I want that other 400 pounds, and in a lot of instances, more than that, going back to the soil surface. And so by just taking, leaving a lot behind, taking a moderate amount, short grazing periods, long recovery periods. I have a denser stand of grasses. I have more uh, uh, unused uh, grass plants decaying on the ground. I think I have better moisture retention. I think I have lower, cooler soil temperatures in the summer, and I have more vigorous plants that, going back to what you are originally talking about, are more resilient. Right. And something that you said before is economic resiliency is having – money in the bank at yeah with this kind of grazing management i call it i think some ranchers feel like it's leaving money on the table mm -hmm. and i like to say it's it's leaving money in the bank and just to follow up on what you're saying about grass growth uh, i don't think that's coddling primarily because once you're into the growing season as you said all of your all of your growth is dependent on photosynthesis and the rate of growth is proportional to how much leaf area you've got on the plant above ground and so you know, if you think of those 
60 days where you've actually have the potential for high daily growth rates. You know, if you, if you plot that on a graph, every day that you've got high growth rates, the area underneath all of those points is your total yield for the season. And so your goal is something other than just keeping the plants alive. It's keeping them uh, at a high rate of growth as much as is possible. I think that, you know, one objection that could be raised to the three and a half leaf idea is that that represented, that was one of the guidelines given in range readiness um, recommendations. Mm -hmm. But the idea with range readiness was that you were turning cattle out on a single piece of ground and leaving them there for the growing season, and you didn't want to come on until the plants are ready for growth. Uh, what you're talking about is avoiding grazing until the plants are big enough to have something left behind after they take you know, one cut at it in the springtime, and then removing the animals so that the plants can uh, go ahead and grow rapidly and yield a lot in order for us to have something to graze later. Right. And then with the, with the set stalking that you were just describing is that I think it's unfair to grass plants. I like to think in terms of fairness. And if I was a grass plant, I'd like to be grazed once and then left alone to uh, continue growing through the growing season. And then come back and graze me a little bit more if you want to again, but still leave that five inches of stubble behind, five to eight inches of stubble behind so that I can lay something on the ground. And the three and a half uh, leaves uh, might have been created for set stalking rates a long time ago. But through research, it's been shown that it's not until that stage of maturity that you can get that tillering to occur. And so that tillering, that uh, uh, spreading of the even the bunch grass plant that increases the density of grass plants and reduces our percentage of bare ground is, is just critical. And so to lose out on that tool because we're a little bit greedy in the spring is, uh, uh, I think, short-sighted. It's, uh, it's uh, cashing in a bond before it's hit term and taking a, and taking a, a bit of a penalty. Mm-hmm. So let's allow these plants to flourish and are uh, even in the bad years when it's dry, we have a healthy plant. It's going to be more productive than a plant that was stressed or starved or uh, severely bitten in the years or years previous to that. Um, we're as human beings, we can take the occasional uh, night where we don't get much sleep. We can take the occasional day where we work the 12 or 14 hours. Um, we can take the occasional day where we don't eat very well. But we can't do any of those things on a sustained basis and perform to our optimum. And so I want grass plants that are well-rested but vigorous with a lot of green forage on them, a lot of green leaves. Uh, you, you talked, you said it so well about had that photosynthetic surface. We have a limited time. We want to maximize the leaves that can capture that sunlight and continue growing, and as the plant matures, store energy in the roots and in the crown for uh, new growth next spring. Yeah, those plants are solar panels, not mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, something else you said made me think of a comment that Kirk Davies made. We were talking about uh, monitoring and what some useful indicators of rangeland health might be, and you know the the new ecological site descriptions by the NRCS list 17 indicators of rangeland health. Uh, but a rancher is not going to measure all 17 of those. Uh, so I was asking him, what are some useful metrics that somebody could reasonably measure that would be uh, that would be telling as to whether or not we're making progress mm-hmm. or, or losing ground? And one of the things that he mentioned that's easy to measure that is an extremely useful indicator is the density of the bunchgrass plants, uh, which is something a little bit different even than the basal area or the the amount of ground covered by the rooted portion of the plant. But one of the reasons why density is important is because bunchgrass plants or any kind of plants have a lifespan. They don't last forever. And if mm-hmm. they're not successfully reproducing, then you eventually have a decadent stand that, that thins out or gets replaced by perhaps less desirable plants. And uh, one of the limiting factors to getting particularly native perennial grasses to reproduce is getting seed in contact with the soil. But if you have, if you have dense, if you have a dense stand, it's an indicator that you've got multiple age classes represented in your plant community. Uh, So you've got young plants, middle-aged plants, older plants, and that there's a variety of ways to accomplish that. But one of them is that they have to be able to produce a seed head periodically. 
Uh, what kind of what kind of range plants do you primarily have? Your operation goes from some lower, a little bit lower low for you, up into uh, the you know, ponderosa pine and mixed conifers on the forest. What kind of range plants do you have at your lowest elevations? So at our lowest elevations, we have Idaho fescue, some blue bunch wheatgrass, and quite a bit of crested wheatgrass. And I'd argue with uh, you and Kirk that we need seeds. If we have healthy perennial grass plants that are tillering, we can have grasses that through the tillers and creation of young new plants from the tillers that become independent of the original parent plant, we can have plants that get a denser stand. I will agree with you and Kirk that density is everything. Ground cover is everything. So instead of 17 indicators, if we had a percentage of bare ground, uh, percentage of perennial grass plants versus annual, I think we would have a pretty good sampling of the health of a rangeland. Now, there's nothing wrong with those 17 indicators, but to me, it's the difference between an audit and balancing your checkbook. You are not going to have a, an accountant come in here and do an uh, audit on your personal finance, finances once a month. But you sure want to know how much money you have in the bank, don't you? Mm -hmm. And so we need something we can glance at quickly to capture the health of our rangelands. And for uh, ongoing periodic monitoring, let's use, uh, uh, see if we can reduce the percentage of bare ground and increase the density of perennial grass plants. If we're doing those two things, we're having, I think, an increasingly healthy range. Having said that, do I mind shrubs in the range? No, uh, just as long as they aren't taking over the range. And I, I'm capturing that by measuring the, the percentage of or frequency of perennial grass plants. Seeds, I mean, plants produce seeds for re reason, but there's been a lot of research that's shown that seeds are very uh, efficient or predictable. In You don't get a, a seed into a seedling into a mature grass plant every year. Mm -hmm. You can have a decade where you don't get any seedlings at all. You can have a decade where all the seedlings die of drought. So the importance of having these plants that can tiller and uh, uh, spread uh, vegetatively rather than sexually is really critical to the healthiest rangelands. How do we get the tillering? By grazing after three and a half leaves and before seed set. And that can occur, you know, we think of intermediate wheatgrass as being the all-time tillering plant of the introduced species. And we think of blue bunch and Idaho fescue as not tillering, but even they tiller to some extent. We can get denser stands of grassing if we graze them appropriately. Yeah, and each of those tillers has its own root system. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of the old range scientists call it walking out when a big plant would split up into multiple plants uh -huh. and kind of function independently. Did they think that was a good thing? Yeah. Okay. Because I see that sounds to me like a, an increasingly dense rangeland. But these uh, big uh, perennial bunch grasses that have the hollowed out dead center, that isn't spreading out and walking away, is it? That, no, the number of live tillers on those is extremely small. Yeah. So it's having these like plants that. that can produce the live tillers and uh, make a denser, healthier rangeland, that's good. I, I mean, we're thinking about a, a climate that's getting increasingly dry and not increasingly dry, at least increasingly variable. We need healthy plants that uh, can uh, handle a dry year, but also conserve that moisture. And we only do that through uh, covering that bare ground. That uh, that plant cover on the ground, just like a, a Band-Aid on a, on a sore, it protects it. It uh, keeps it from uh, being abused by weather or, or variations in temperature. It's just like a, a sweater on a, on a chilly day. It gives us comfort, enables us to better withstand the changes in, in temperature and weather. Uh, we've talked some about ecological resiliency by being careful about how we manage rangelands and managing for maximum plant health. Uh, we've talked a bit about economic resiliency, uh, trying to create animals and manage animals within a year in a way that doesn't cost a fortune to keep them alive or reproducing. Uh, I think social resiliency is maybe not quite as easy to put your fingers on uh, how to how to do that well. I'm thinking of uh, some recent studies, one by UC Davis, where they were asking ranchers, what do you see as the primary obstacles 
to ranching in general. And by and large, and this is consistent with surveys done across the West, uh, they would say that regulations, sometimes environmental regulations, but regulations in general are one of the main threats or the main risks to the viability of ranching, uh, which is very much a, a social thing. I think some of that is the result of the legacy effects of mismanaged grazing from 100 years ago. Those landscapes take a while to change and to recover from that. Mm -hmm. What other aspects of social resiliency do you think are, are relevant? So social resiliency to me is the ability to handle stress. And that stress could be in the form of increased regulation. Um, it could be in the form of people on, of other users on public lands wanting to use the same uh, grazing area that you do, albeit for different functions. Social stress can be the fact that maybe a, a higher and better use has come along for a piece of land that you're renting or uh, on public lands. So how do we, how do we deal with this uh, fact that there's, we're somewhere around 8 billion people on this planet and the wide open West is no longer wide nor open. We need to find ways to graze that is compatible with other users. And people have, society has said that they want wolves back on the landscape. Society has said they want anadromous fish in their streams. Society has said they want areas of, of seclusion uh, for people to recreate in, whether it be camping or hiking or hunting or bird watching. And so how do we provide all those uses and yet continue to have ranches that uh, can thrive and prosper? My answer is that we need to be cognizant of those other use users and we need to be respectful of them. There's a segment of the livestock industry that feels that if we could just go back to 1966 and manage the way that our grandparents did, everything would be hunky-dory. Well, it's not going to happen. The world's a different place. And uh, a few weeks ago, I was at a, a, a seminar where m members of the Oregon Cattlemen's Association were talking about how they manage around wolves. And I was so impressed. I mean, uh, who would want wolves on their grazing land? No one. I mean, even if you don't have predation, uh, apparently the reaction of the livestock to the presence of wolves causes uh, severe reductions in, in conception rates and, and weight gain. It's, it's a real stress. But these ranchers were learning enough to know that they could uh, manage around wolves by being very selective in which wolves were, if they had to be uh, harvested, uh, exterminated, which ones to do it, not to eliminate the whole pack. They were very good at learning about how to uh, work around wolves in a way that wolves were at certain areas at certain times of the year, and maybe they could find a way to manage uh, so their cattle weren't in those areas when the wolves were. Mm -hmm. And I just came away that, with that impressed because in the, in the early 60s, uh, calf scours became an issue. And I can remember uh, traveling around with my dad, and he worked for the Department of Agriculture. And we'd go to a ranch, and there'd just be piles of dead calves. And the ranchers were, what are we going to do? And there had to be a silver bullet that would, they could vaccinate or treat scours and everything would be fine. And yeah, vaccines were developed and uh, uh antibacterial drugs were developed and uh, ways to treat sick calves with electrolytes was developed. But the main thing that people learned about scours was that it was a management problem. Mm -hmm. You needed clean ground to calve on. Baxter Black once said that there's nothing that comes out of the end of a balling gun or a hypodermic needle that can compensate for subpar animal husbandry. And that's perfect. And um, we need to be able to manage around these problems. And, how do we manage around a problem like wolves or, or people or uh, uh, leaving uh, 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 high stubble heights along riparian areas uh, so that uh, we have riparian areas that are more fish friendly? Well, it's through education. It's through listening respectfully. And it's communicating well. And so if these regulations that, are, that sometimes seem onerous seem inappropriate, 
seem unfair. We can't respond by yelling or throwing a tantrum or saying that they're just wrong. We need to understand first why the people propose those standards and rules. And then we can, with respect, propose alternatives. And maybe if we listen well and talk respectfully, we can come up with win-win solutions that work for both of us. We're involved with a, a branded beef co-op called Country Natural Beef. And years ago, we became antibiotic free. And all of us were terrified of that. I mean, that's a real important tool when an animal gets sick to be able to give it antibiotic. Well, we weren't saying don't treat. We're just saying if you treat an animal, uh, mark the ear tag or, or, or notch the ear uh, so that we know and that those won't go in the branded beef program. But what it forced us to do was to become a better job of managing our cattle. It ended up that going antibiotic free wasn't a cost. It was a benefit because we had healthier animals. We learned to wean in a low stress manner. We learned to better meet the nutrient requirements for our livestock. We learned to uh, move our cattle in a low stress manner. So all those things made us better producers and not any more expensive producers. And yet we did a better job of providing kind of meat that our customers wanted. And so that is an example of a, of a win-win solution. How do we, uh, uh, so I think we can use the same thing with increasing number of users on public lands, increasing regulation on public lands, uh, increasing regulation from state environmental agencies. We can learn from this. And as long as not too much comes down upon us at once, I think we can learn to adapt and change and improve our uh, operations. But you, in order to handle that stress, you need to have some confidence in yourself in your ability to communicate, your ability to listen to others and understand where they're coming from. And that is a skill that all of us need to get better at in order to deal with these changes that are occurring. You know, we talk about climate change, but social change is right up there with the things that we have to deal with. One of the things that's been discussed in range management recently is that things operate, principles operate at different spatial scales. And you know, if we do research on plots of the size of this table, you cannot necessarily extrapolate that to 100,000 acres and expect it to hold up. Mm-hmm. I think social resiliency operates a little bit that way as well. Uh, some of the things that you're describing make a big difference at the societal level, but they also work at the, the nearest spatial scale socially, uh, which is within, you know, within a family or within a, a ranch operation, a group of employees. Yeah. Uh, there are a number of ranches where there's no one to pass the ranch on to because mm-hmm. uh, the kids associate working cows with a tremendously stressful social environment and they don't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, it the quality of life is low enough that it's not worth it uh, for them in a business where, you know, historically the rate of return on investment has been three to 5%. Mm-hmm. You know, most ranches could liquidate what they've got in landing cattle and put it on the stock market and make more money than they are ranching. But uh, that, that doesn't put food on the table. And there is a, a, a joy from finding ways to do this in a way that is ecologically possible, economically possible and socially possible. And I'm, you know, I'm smiling as I think about this because our uh, social skills, all of us could be improved upon. I mean, if my wife was listening, she'd say, uh, listen with respect, listen at all <laughs> in terms of me. And uh, it's something that we all have to work on. And and just like what you're saying about extrapolating from a plot the size of this uh, dining room table to 100,000 acres, uh, we need to communicate well with our sp- spouses. We need to communicate well with our employees. We need to communicate well with our community. We need to communicate well with our agencies. It keeps it keeps growing, and trying to do all that well is a is a, a huge challenge, but an even greater opportunity. Yeah. Speaking of agencies, one final question: You received a, an award from the U.S. Forest Service a few years ago. What was that award, and and why was it granted to Southworth Brothers Ranch? Mm-hmm. We were. Uh, 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 honored with an award from the Forest Service as the uh, an innovative uh, permittee of the year, and we received that award not because of anything that I did alone, but 
myself and Teresa and Ed Newton, who works for us, and Lucas Moore, who works for us, all have a passion for managing public lands well. We understand that we don't own those public lands. We don't even think that we have a right to those public lands. We feel honored that we have a permit out there that enables us to graze for a term of 10 years at a time um, between renewals. And so we're going to do everything we can to graze in a way that achieves the standards that the Forest Service wants us to. And the neat thing about Ed and Lucas is they're as good off a horse as they are on it. They like running cattle in the Forest Service in the summertime because they get to be out there horseback. They're moving cattle around off of riparian areas and up to higher elevation areas, achieving good distribution, achieving good utilization. But they're equally good on foot or four-wheeler putting up and taking down electric fence. And one of the most useful tools we found is areas of concern, areas like riparian areas where cattle seem to bed a lot or use a lot, uh, springs that uh, we want to protect. Electric fence is an amazing thing for protecting on a short-term basis the areas that we want to keep livestock out of. Uh, We also have areas that we've built permanent fencing around certain riparian areas. And we don't exclude, we don't call them exclusions, exclosures, because we're not trying to exclude livestock from anything, but we are trying to control our livestock very carefully. And so that mix of permanent pasture, permanent enclosures, not exclosures, enclosures, and plus electric fencing has enabled uh, Ed and Lucas to do an incredible job of managing livestock and achieving the standards they want in the Forest Service. And I think the, the award was uh, to them as much as anything for saying, hey, good job on achieving increasingly tough standards to achieve on the grazing lands of the U.S. Forest Service. And so we're, we're really thankful for it and really proud of it. Well, I congratulate you. And uh, for, for those who came in in the middle, our guest today was Jack Southworth. Jack, thank you for your time. You bet. It's been a pleasure, Tip, and uh, thank you for uh, taking on this podcast, and and I look forward to uh, hearing from other participants in this uh, podcast. I think we're all going to learn something. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Music